This is an ABC podcast. A question. What were you doing when you were in your early 20s? Oh, me? Uh, I was drinking Midorian lemonade and the toughest decision I had to make was what to hang from the mirror of the 1992 Holden Barina that my dad bought me. Hairy dice or those smelly Christmas trees? Hmm. Went for the tree in the end. But other 20-ish-year-olds... Hmm. The doctor said, like, you're, you're it. Like, you need to make this decision and um, you need to make this decision within the next half an hour because if we don't start treatment within the next half an hour, it's not going to have any effect. Oh, man. So you yeah. literally were the only person in your family that could make a decision as to whether your great-uncle lived or died and you had to make it in 30 minutes. Yeah. Meet Jacinta. Jacinta found herself making that decision when she was just 24 years old. Kind of puts the whole Verena smelly Christmas tree situation into perspective. Hello, I'm Jan Fran and this is The Pineapple Project and this season we're tackling death. Well, the logistics of death anyway. Because that story from Jacinta... It gets a whole lot trickier. It's not an isolated incident. Folks are forced to make tough calls about the people they love all the time. Jacinta's situation, having to make this kind of decision unprepared, is very common, surprisingly common. People wouldn't realise, but this is taking place now every 15 minutes somewhere in Australia, around the clock, 24-7. So we're talking 40,000 decisions of this kind taking place every year in Australia. Hectic. That's Dr Peter Saul an intensive care doctor who specialises in end-of-life care. More from him later. But first, for this episode, you are going to need to know about a sexy little term called an advanced care directive or advanced care plan. Sexy enough for you? This is a document that you create, which lets people know what sort of medical treatment you'd be up for if you weren't able to speak for yourself. Stuff like, keep me alive at all costs, versus, I wouldn't want to stick around unless I could shower myself because my personality is very independent. In this document, you appoint a decision maker, that's kind of like an emergency medical contact, to make decisions that would reflect the plan. How fun's appointing people, like a queen? Or Oprah. More on this later. Back to Jacinta. So my parents uh, went on an overseas holiday. They left me as the emergency medical contact for my 97-year-old great-uncle. Jacinta's great-uncle was put into respite care for the trip. Before that, he'd been living at home with them. And my parents were like, it'll be fine. He'll just go in there for, you know, a few weeks and you'll just go and visit him and things and, oh, you're the emergency medical contact, but, like, that'll be fine. Um, You know, we'll be able to be contacted most of the time, so don't worry about it. Uh, and that turned out not to be true. <laughs> OK, so what happened? So uh, mum and dad were away, everything was going fine for the first kind of week and a half, two weeks or so. Uh, And then he got a little bit sick. Uh, The doctor went and saw him at the nursing home and he was, they were like, yeah, he's okay. You know, um, he's just, you know, settling in. Uh, About two o'clock, I got a call from the nursing home saying he'd been transferred to Queanbeyan Hospital. He'd deteriorated rapidly. 
So you're at work at this point. Yeah. Your phone rings. Mm-hmm. So talk us through that moment. So um, at first I didn't hear it because at that time I was a barista, very noisy. Um, but then uh, I finally I was like, oh, gee, I've got three missed calls. This must be, um, <laughs> this mustn't be good. Ex- fully expecting that they were going to tell me he was dead. Um, and they said, look, you need to like drop whatever you're doing and go to Queanbeyan Hospital. They need you on standby. And I automatically kind of went into okay, I'm not going to panic. They had an inkling that it could be an infection, but they weren't sure. Um, then the doctor came and said to me, the, the blood tests have come back. He's got a urinary tract infection that's turned into a kidney infection and he's, um, kind of his organs are starting to uh, shut down, his kidneys are. Um, we can administer treatment if you want, but uh, it may or may not work. Um, and if it does, he may not have very good quality of life after the treatment. So as soon as I got to the hospital and realised that, and and they told me he was quite ill, I straight away was on the phone to mum and dad trying to get through to them. And I very quickly realised after trying to call them 10 times in five minutes, they weren't going to be answering. And the doctor said, like, you're you're it. Like, you need to make this decision and um, you need to make this decision within the next half an hour because if we don't start treatment within the next half an hour, it's not going to have any effect. Oh, man. What's going on in your head at this point when you realise that you are the one that has to make this massive decision and you have to make it pretty fast? Well, first of all, I wanted to just walk away and just be like, yep, no, um, someone else do this. If I walk away, like, can someone else make this decision for me? And then I was like, no, like, I can't, they can't. Um, I need to do this. Tell us what decision you came to and, and why you came to that particular decision. So I came to the decision with two minutes to, <laughs> to spare um, that uh, they shouldn't commence treatment. Um, it was the hardest decision that I've, one of the hardest decisions I've made in my life, uh, knowing that making that decision he was going to die. Um, and so, yeah, from that point... Um, yeah, he rapidly deteriorated and ended up dying. So that was yeah, pretty full on. And were you with him when he died? Yeah, I um, actually sat with him through um, the whole process of him dying, which I had never even seen a dead body before. I'd never even been um, in a room with someone who was dying. So I had absolutely no idea what to expect, but I knew I couldn't leave him. It was, um, it was very full on. Um, there's a sound that a body makes when someone's dying. It's called the death rattle and it is absolutely the most horrific sound I've ever heard. Um, I can still vividly remember it and that kind of started at about 10 o'clock um, that night and it just got worse and worse until um, he passed away the following morning, uh, just before 4am. God, they just don't prepare you for that, do they? They really don't. They definitely do not. No. Did you end up getting in touch with your parents in the end? Yeah. So, (laughs) um, about an hour after I made the decision, my, uh, parents, rang me um, off a payphone on the site. They managed to get a little bit of reception enough to know that I called a lot. Um, And 
I had to, I couldn't even tell them. Uh, I ended up, the doctor that um, had talked me through everything was still there and, and she got on the phone and explained very medically kind of what had happened. Um, and then she said, your dad wants to talk to you. And I was just like, I don't even know if I can. She's like, just listen. He, he knows you're probably not in the state to talk. And the first thing that my dad said to me was, you made the right decision. Which for me was huge because in the back of my head when I was making the decision, I was thinking, like, what if mum and dad disagree? Like, what if mum and dad, like, this is, they would have made a different decision. Um, and I was kind of, like, battling, well, I don't even know what, you know, decision they would make. I kind of thought perhaps they would have made the same one, but then again, they may not have. So that decision is something that Jacinta still thinks about today. Now, you might not find yourselves in exactly that super hectic position, but you get it, right? It's going to be infinitely less stressful for anyone involved if you have a plan. Our doctor from before, that is intensive care specialist Peter Saul, sees situations like this play out on the reg. And from the way he describes it, dying in the ICU sounds intense. Yeah, it looks like chaos. Um, I mean, it's organised chaos, I reassure the public. But it, it, you, you walk in, it's just people going everywhere pretty much at top speed with patients in lots of rooms in the side, loads of equipment, lots of things going bing, lots of noise. And when you go in there, the thing that most strikes you is just the sheer amount of stuff. The stuff in the corridors, the stuff on the desks, the stuff everywhere, machinery, glinting, you've no idea what it is, rows and rows and rows of syringes and stuff. And the noise is very striking. You, the lights never go out in an ICU, so even at night time it's all brightly lit and it never gets quiet. Not somewhere where if you were looking to have quiet conversations or, or die uh, that you'd really choose. So, yeah, it's a pretty chaotic, very full-on environment, 24 hours a day. It doesn't, never stops or slows down. About one in ten of the general public will die in an ICU and about one in ten of the people coming into an ICU, maybe more like one in eight, die in the ICU. Why do you think it's increasing? Because it's becoming an expectation that everything possible will be done in every circumstance. And to a degree, that works. We have got... we have, In Australia, we have the highest survival of preventable deaths in the world. So in that age group, 39 to 65, where deaths are considered preventable, we have the best track record in the whole of the planet in terms of averting death. But the, the side effect of that is we overdo it for a lot of people as well now. So we're throwing the book at everybody. For some it works and for some it doesn't. And we're getting worse and worse at deciding not to do something uh, because it's become so grooved that if you go into hospital and you're sick, you will end up there unless somebody along the line decides to stop the process and that's not easy to do. So if a patient comes in um, and they, you know, they have a stroke or they fall into a coma, they're no longer able to speak for themselves, um, they don't have any kind of advanced care directive, is it incumbent on you to do everything that you possibly can to keep that person alive? Pretty much, yes. I mean... I'd like to say there are some qualifiers there. I guess if we thought it was completely bonkers, we might not. But the the truth of the matter is it's pretty much a default. If you're, if you're critically unwell and you turn up on our doorstep, we'll do everything. 
unless we find reasons why we shouldn't be doing that. And overwhelmingly, that would be because people don't want it, but we, it's very hard to find that out. <laughs> unless they've kind of specifically mentioned it in an advanced care directive or some kind of plan. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, that that's pretty rare. If I were to actually... It's so rare for somebody to come in with an actual advanced care directive that I would photocopy that and, and frame it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that your office is one day filled with framed <laughs> a advanced care directives all over the walls. Yeah, me too, because it, 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 it can be a very, very successful strategy. But it, it's actually just as successful just to chat, you know, just to talk to your own family and so that they know because they'll be there, you know, they'll come. And, and they'll end up in the situation of having to make decisions for you if you're not conscious. And uh, that's a hell of a pressure on people. And, you know, be kind to your family. Talk to them, you know, give them a bit of an idea of what they're supposed to say. Yeah, that's solid advice, I think. I just want to kind of get a little bit more specific in that scenario. So someone's come into the ICU, they've fallen into a coma, they're um, incapacitated, can't speak for themselves. They don't really have any kind of advanced care plan or directive. Talk us through the steps that you then go through from there. Um, yeah. So what we have to establish first is what the realistic possible outcomes are. So we have to decide what could happen here? What realistically could we achieve here? So that, that takes us a little time and commonly maybe a couple of days of testing to see what's possible. Um, at that point, we have to establish what the patient would have wanted, given those options. You know, you could survive this, but you'll never be functional. You'll never be able to eat. You won't recognize your family. Um, so we have to understand that that is the situation. And then we take that to the family. And their job, and many don't understand this, their job is to try to speak as if they were in the patient's shoes in that moment. So this is not what they want. It's not what we want. It's not what anybody else wants. It's what they think that patient would have wanted. Uh, and that's sometimes quite hard for them to do if they've never had any kind of conversation about this before. So we've had couples that have lived, you know, 60th wedding anniversary couples. They've never talked about what they want or what their values are or any of these kinds of things. So it, it's surprisingly hard for them to say, oh, he would not have wanted to be like that. But that is the job. That's what the job of the family is. They have to tell us that. And, and we base our treatment basically on what's possible and what the family think. How do DNR wishes come into play? So do not resuscitate. Do, do you ever get folks who say, I want to be resuscitated no matter what, and you as a medical expert are thinking, oh, I just don't think that's a good idea? Yes. Uh, and uh, again, that's, this hasn't been common in Australia yet, but in America it's almost overwhelmingly the case. Uh, and therefore I'm expecting to see more of it. You know, people saying, well, I want you to resuscitate me. I don't care that I've got stage four cancer. I want to live to see my grandchild get her diploma, you know, whatever it takes, that's what I want. Actually, I think we really are morally obliged to at least meet them halfway with that. You know, we talk about good death and stuff like that, but for some people it is to go down fighting in that way. And I'm not here to try and tell people they don't want this and they don't want that. If they do want something, tell us that too. There's a limit, and I guess everybody would understand that, but I, we'd, we'll meet you halfway if that's what you want. You don't believe in such thing as a good death. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? It's just a bad term. You know, the language around this is terrible, um, but there's nothing good about death. I mean, I've seen 
I don't even know how many deaths I've seen. I, I don't even want to start thinking about it. But um, th there's nothing ever good about it, trust me. Um, it's always sad. Uh, it's sometimes tragic. Uh, it's sometimes awful. The, the best I think we can hope for is a death that is consistent with the way somebody was. Um, you know, we've had a patient who, you know, had stage four cancer and he really wanted to die on a ventilator. He was so determined. We tried to send him home to die. He brought himself back to hospital. He, 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 was, he was mad keen. Uh, and when he did die, his, um, his uh, wife said, that was so great that you did that because that's what he wanted. He wanted to go out fighting and, and he did go out fighting on, on massive machinery. So, was that a good death? Well... It probably was, but not everybody's idea of a good death. So I think we should be using terms like authentic or valid or safe and not good when you're talking about death. It just seems to send the wrong message. Yeah, that's fair enough. I don't think we really talk about death as something that is authentic. I don't think I've ever really heard it framed that way. Yeah, well, I think it has to be real, you know, keep it real. Is, is what we're trying to say. <laughs> I love that. When you die, keep it real. Keep it real. Yep, good. Dr. Saul, what advice would you have given Jacinta? I think she shouldn't try to say what she wants or what she thinks or what she believes in. She just needs to try to report as best she can what her uncle would have wanted if he could speak for himself. And people don't realise that. They're not there to have an opinion. They're not there to try and save somebody's life. They're just there to try to report what it is they think he would have wanted. Do you ever question the decisions that you made in that time? A hundred percent. Not so much now. Uh, we've like about just gone five years. Um, probably for the first six months or so, I really struggled with the whole scenario. Uh, it was very full on experience to go through, and it's not really something you talk to. You can talk to your friends about, especially at twenty four. I mean, you can kind of mention that you sat with your uncle Wade Dunn, but you're not going to go into the details because who wants to hear about that, really? Um, and so, you know, uh, mum and dad were really good. They were really supportive and stuff, and they could see I was kind of struggling and helped me as much as they could. Um, but it, it took me probably until, the you know, his first anniversary that I really kind of started to feel okay with the decision that I'd made. Um, but it really probably wasn't until the second anniversary of his passing that I kind of was 100% comfortable with the fact that I had made the right decision. Whew. That is an intense situation for anyone to be in, let alone a 24-year-old. I'm a decade older than Jacinta and I didn't even know her great-uncle and even I'm stressed. I'm going to go to the hospital cafeteria for a little me time. Who's got the strong flat white and the caramel slice? Oh, hey, Grimmy. I was wondering where you got to. Are you even allowed in here? Oh, yeah, I volunteer here. It appeases my guilt. Also, I mean, you know, while I'm here, uh, I kind of know what I'm doing. I, I could help you out with some tips. Oh, you heard all that? Yeah, actually, that would be great. Well, one, like that nice man with the British accent said, go to your GP and write an advanced care plan or directive and do them a favour, always book a longer appointment. But before you do, two, think about your values. These are totally specific to you. Like, 
If something unexpected happens, what matters to you most? Do you value a certain level of independence, say, being able to shower yourself? Those questions seem big, and let's be honest, they really are. But there is a website that can help you. It's myvalues.org.au. It's like a fun little quiz about end-of-life care. And three, tell the people closest to you what you'd be prepared to live with. It is a full-on conversation. But imagine if they didn't know and had to make the decision on your behalf. I I would say that's maybe more full-on. And if you want to spend more time on the internet than you already do, or you just want more info on how this works in your state or territory... Do yourself a favour and go to advancedcareplanning.org.au. Thanks, Grimmy. Wow, you're like a doctor, except the opposite. Now, can I have a caramel slice, please? I'm Jan Fran and this is The Pineapple Project and I'm more convinced than ever that we all need to put in a bit of prep before death Because you don't want to be coming across this stuff for the first time while an ICU doctor in scrubs is asking you to tell them how many fingers they're holding up or asking you to sign on a dotted line. Mm Mm-mm. Next on The Pineapple Project, I'm someone who, you might say, understands the allure of a quick little splash into my social media feeds. Through the Facebook ether, they're somehow hearing it. But what's going to happen to all those hot takes I had when I die? They've got them forever. They've got them forever. So basically, you need to delete people from your life. That's the only solution for you. (laughs) Humans. We've always loved a tribute to the dead, but I don't know if your rellos will appreciate all those reminders of you hanging around once you're gone. So you had to prove that he was dead to Facebook first? Well, I had to first show the death notice that he had died. How to work your social media settings to avoid being a digital ghost. If you send a death notice in, it gets turned into a remembrance page, but to close it down is actually quite difficult. And we'll answer all the big questions. Can your mum see into your DMs? That's on the next episode of The Pineapple Project. The Pineapple Project is mixed by sound engineers Angie Grant and Chrissy Miltiadu. It's produced by Carla Arnold and Claire O'Halloran. The role of Grimmy, a.k.a. the Grim Reaper, is played by Reese Nicholson. The host is Mua Janfran. The EP, a.k.a. executive producer, is Rachel Fountain. And Kelly Reardon is the manager of ABC Audio Studios. Look, I'm aware that all this death and dying chat can get extremely hectic. So I'm going to just suggest a quick break here so I can take full advantage of your vulnerable state and help you tap into a serene part of your brain. All you need to do is go into your podcast app and click subscribe to the ABC podcast mindfully because then next time everything around you is feeling a tad too overwhelming, you can just whack on those free meditations straight into your ear holes and mindfully meditate your way to a calmer state. Each episode is tailored to help you sleep, de-stress at work and even play sports better. Oh, yeah, and the old captain of the Sydney Swans, a.k.a. Brett Kirk, is the host. (laughs) There you go. Mindfully. You deserve a bit of peace. All right, this soothing advertisement is over.